forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. I'm going to ask you all to go around the table and please introduce yourself on the microphone. So the listener can tell what your voice sounds like. Uh, please tell us also where they may have seen your name uh, on their television screen. Denise, starting with you. Hi, my name is Denise Harkavy. Um, I'm a drama writer, and I most recently worked on the sci-fi show The Expanse, which is now on Amazon, by the way. So please <laughs> tune in. And the other one that I did before, which I loved, was The Brave for NBC. Do you know, does uh, The Expanse have a premiere date yet? Um, I don't know yet. Okay. Yeah. I think because they're all now being released at the same time. Oh, sure. Yeah, they don't know yet. Okay. Yeah. We'll take all that out. <laughs> uh, my name is Carolee Burke. I am a comedy writer and animation writer. And I guess you'd see my name on um, a lot of kids shows most recently. Uh, a show called Hanazuki, which is on YouTube by Hasbro. And also The Littlest Pet Shop and The Mr. Peabody and Sherman Show. I have upcoming uh, Costume Quest for Amazon uh, and then also before that, I worked in live action uh, multicams, so like Melissa and Joey, and a show called Romantically Challenged, which was my first show, which lasted for four episodes. So I'm sure you're all huge fans. <laughs> <laughs> what is Costume Quest? I saw the art for this show. Oh, yeah. It's so cool. The art is awesome. And the show is so fun. It's based okay. on a video game. Okay. So it's um, these kids who have these magical Halloween costumes that allow them to power up into whatever they're dressed as. And they use those powers to fight off monsters who are trying to take over the town's candy factory before Halloween night. Oh, that's really fun. Although it's going to come out in March. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> right timing. Good thinking. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Uh, Franklin. I'm Franklin Hardy. I wrote, most recently wrote for The Mick on Fox. And before that, I was on a show called You're the Worst on FX. And before that, a string of uh, network <laughs> comedies that you probably haven't heard of that were one and done. They, listen, we've all heard of them, but <laughs> I, like I remember because especially living here in LA, everything gets such a big premiere and there's so much talk about it. But like looking at the Running Wild and Man Up and How to Live with Your Parents, uh, like yeah. these were all sort of one season. Some of them uh, should have gone more, and some of them yeah. should not. <laughs> sure, <laughs> which I think always the case uh, when you work on a few shows. Uh, but you were—you've been in sort of the Claudia Lano camp for a, yeah. a few of these shows. Well, I met Claudia as an assistant way mm -hmm. back uh, on a show called The War at Home, which is a Fox multicam. Sure, two thousand—I want to say five or six or mm -hmm. something like that. I don't even remember. Um, My—I had a writing partner for most of my career, actually. So he and I met her there and became friends. And yeah, and then she hired us. Are accidentally on purpose, multicam, mm -hmm. uh, Jenna Elfman. We were staff writers on that. And then she brought us back for How to Live with Your Parents. That's great. So you're doing something cool. right. With Claudia, I am doing <laughs> <With something>. Claudia. <laughs> <laughs> um, So was that your breaking in story? I mean, did you sort of go the assistant route? Yeah. I went um, PA was my first job mm -hmm. um, on a Norm MacDonald sitcom called uh, A Minute with Stan Hooper. This is like... This must be 2004 or something. Oh, my God. He played a sportscaster in Wisconsin. Okay. And uh, he would eat a whole chicken for lunch every day with ketchup. <laughs> that, well, I, that I brought to him. The character or Norm? Norm would. And, what? Uh, yeah, he was, he was a crazy guy. Um, but uh, so I was a I think we're done. I think that's <laughs> – we got everything we need. He like – he chain smoked – or I think he – I can't remember if it was – he started chain smoking – and would smoke like two packs a day, and then he would just he just quit like in the middle of the season, out of the blue, like cold turkey, like it was nothing. He was just like a, he had these weird obsessive things. Yeah, 
Like the chicken and ketchup, but that was very strange. Um, That's super strange. Yeah. Nice guy <laughs> otherwise, though. But um, sure. yeah. So I was a PA on that, uh-huh. and then I kind of moved up to writer's assistant, did that for a couple of years, where I met my uh, writing partner. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, and was was the goal always to become a writer on television show? Like for my whole life? Well, from the time you entered as a PA. I think, yeah. I Actually, when I got the PA job, I don't think so. I really? think I just needed a job because uh-huh. um, I was – I was living here and I was uh, an assistant at a really low budge talent agency. <laughs> it was like really sad. And um, I had a buddy who was the assistant to the line producer on that show. Mm-hmm. And he just kind of brought me in and said, do you want to come, you know, do you want to do a PA job? I said, sure. Um, but then once I got in there, I was kind of like, I wanted to be a writer, but I had never really thought much about like hmm. half hour comedy writing. So once I was in the world, um, I was like, yeah, this looks like pretty fun. These guys get free lunch and they make jokes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes. Yeah, so then, and, and writer's assistant, um, I don't know if you guys, you ever do the writer's assistant thing? No. no. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's like going to grad school for sure. television writing, you know, just sitting in the room all day, soaking it up, learning a ton. Um, so my buddy who was an assistant on the show with me, uh, we're doing that and decided to write a script together okay. and we're able to give it to one of the writers there who was nice enough to read it and give it to an agent. And that's kind of how, how we got in. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. And did that agent represent you based off of that? He and did. I yeah. The, um, the writer's name was Steven Engel and he hmm. was at CAA at the time and uh, he gave it to not his agent, but to, like to a low, like a, a, sure. know, a junior or, or, you know, a new agent, a younger guy yeah. who was like our age. And wrote him a, an email where he basically said, uh, you should represent these guys. It's in your best interest or something like that. Yeah, that's um, pretty cool. And I think this young agent was like, okay, Stephen Engel, because he was <laughs> sort of a, you know, a bigger name at the time. And um, so, yeah, then he became our – he's not not my agent anymore. But, right. yeah, he, he hip-pocketed us, as they say. And, oh, really? And uh, sent us out and we got a job. And so then it became a real thing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's often we, – we talk about this every once in a while. It's often very valuable to have that sort of young and hungry agent representing totally. you as a young writer. Yeah, for sure. Because uh, they're going to work so hard to yeah. prove themselves. Yeah. And that means work for you. <laughs> yeah. I have, right now I have an agent who's, like, older and an agent who's younger. And it is, like, the younger one is – they're both great, but it's the younger one seems pretty hungry, which is good. Yeah. Uh, Carolee, what is your breaking in story? How did you get your start in this uh, My breaking in story goes, I started off in improv and sketch comedy, mm-hmm. um, working for Second City in Detroit and then doing some stuff in New York. And then when I moved out here, I was writing spec scripts and applying to the different fellowships and programs. And I got in the Warner Brothers program. Oh, you um, did? I did, yeah. What was your spec script? I wrote a spec of the Sarah Silverman program. Really? The only person that submitted one. I bet. Uh, and like saying, That's a good one, though. Yeah, it was really um, it was really fun. I didn't know the show. I'd done a couple of specs, like 30 Rock, mm-hmm. um, I think was the main one. I'd done a spec of a Nickelodeon show as well, because that was back when I didn't know how it all worked. Oh, funny. Um, yeah. You were like, I love this show. I'm going to write it. No, it was a friend of mine who was at grad school in New York was like, oh, you should apply to these programs. Nickelodeon has one. Write a spec of a Nickelodeon show. Oh, sure. And then I did that. Um, and then I realized like, oh, no, you don't have to write a Nickelodeon right. spec to be uh, up for the Nickelodeon fellowship. But uh, but I did the Warner Brothers one. And that was really, I mean, my way in um, because mm-hmm. it's it just changed my life where – you know, there's only two comedy writers, although I wrote the Sarah Silverman spec. 
Uh, the uh, guy uh, comedy writer that got in that year wrote an office spec, which was the most spec show that oh, year. So absolutely. I always, when people say like, what should I spec? I'm like, really, as long as it's good, it yeah. doesn't matter. As long as it's good and people are vaguely aware of what yeah, the show exactly. is. I think Sarah Silverman was good because even if they didn't know the show, they knew her voice. Yeah, I agree. Um, and that helped me a lot. And that spec got sent out for a long time, even after the show got canceled, which is unusual for a wow. spec. Yeah. Because people... Because they didn't know the show, but they knew her, it sort of read like an original pilot, even though it wasn't. <laughs> and so I was able to like get a lot of leverage out of that spec, which is awesome. That's really great. It's funny what Franklin was saying with the whole thing, like being an assistant and stuff. It's the thing that I wish I had gotten to do mm-hmm. because I was just thrown into a writer's room without getting to be the fly on the wall and seeing like writers do stuff and make mistakes and learn without having to make the mistakes themselves. Um hmm. And it's really the thing that I would say, like, if you can get in that way, that's the way to do it. Yeah. As amazing as the workshop was for me, it was amazing. It got me reps and it got me a job. But right. I also felt like I was a little behind the curve once I got there. And I, know, I knew no showrunners because yeah. I was coming oh, from this workshop. And, like, assistants, you get to know showrunners, you get to know higher-level writers, you get to know people who are going to have their own shows, which really helps better for staffing. You also yeah. learn, like, all the final draft keyboard shortcuts. Oh, my gosh. I still don't know the shortcuts. I'm still like, yeah, yeah, me either. You have to because, you know, you got to be fast. So I still horse. use them. Can you let the listeners know what some of them are? It's just uh, a lot of shifting and arrows <laughs> and, you know, shifts. Spacebar arrow, that kind of stuff. You know, no, it's sorry. all it's all about it's all about. You don't want to be on the mouse, really, at all. It's a waste of time. That makes it's sense. All in the keys. Well, I teach too, and I, whenever I have a higher level spec or pilot class, I make them play writer's assistant, and we pull it up on the screen, That's great. and everyone else can like. Get on them about any sort of mistakes and stuff. Cause like learning to do it's all that with like, so many like writers looking yeah. over your shoulder oh is terrifying. <laughs> I, there were times where I froze. Like it would be like 14 writers and they're all like older and I'm like in my twenties and then they were just like, <laughs> no, up, down, no, not there, oh, there. No. And like my brain would just stop working. And I was like, <laughs> yeah. I can't, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's just terrible. Yeah. But you're sort of thrown into it and you have to. Yeah. You know, you sink or swim in that sort of situation. Now I lost a script one time. That was like, like we had done a rewrite. It was on a multicam. We did a rewrite until oh, no. like 1 a.m. And I was at the keyboards. <gasps> and uh, I don't know what happened. I like all the writers left and I like got up to go print it or get the script coordinator or something and came back and it was just like gone. It just disappeared. Like I didn't press any weird buttons and I basically deleted it. <laughs> like, oh, what do you do? There was this one writer. Um, God, I wish I could remember his name. I would say his name was Darren. My camera's last name. Um, who was like a savant, and he hadn't left yet. And he came back and sat down. And the showrunner was like, "Like I'm going home. Like I can't deal with this. Like Darren, like do your best." And Darren basically recreated the rewrite, oh my like God. from memory until like three in the morning. Or something Holy like that. shit! Yeah, that's insane. That was my low point. I was not a good assistant. And I'm a better writer than I was. Clearly not. <laughs> um, so, currently, the thing I'm curious about coming out of these programs yeah. is. Um, so you don't have that practical being in a room, uh, experience, but what is gained from being in the program? What, what, how do they teach you to write? Um, they do try to recreate the writer's room as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what was hard as a comedy writer in it is that there it's mostly drama writers. Yeah. And so the room that you're creating is mostly a drama writer room, um, which was great as a comedy writer because you're learning structure and character in a different way than mm-hmm. a comedy room sometimes. And I'd had, you know... I was in a lot of improv troops and sketch troops. So I I had the ensemble feel and I had pitched right. things in smaller groups. So you're doing, you're writing, at least at the time that I did it, and I think it's changed now, but like you're writing another spec in the program under oh, both right. having a room full of people 
um, that are giving you notes and also getting notes from executives, um, which I think oh, is really? the most helpful. And they give yeah. you a mentor as well. So there's a lot that you're getting. I got to shadow, um, it was two enough men for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've got to follow the whole like process from table read to oh, show night and sort of see what that process was like, which is especially helpful going in then to a multicam. Yeah. Um, and just really the community that you get out of there. Like, you know, the yeah. people I went through the program with are still my friends. Yeah. Um, they're all drama writers, but they're all my <laughs> friends, you know? And I think it's like that thing that you think that everyone's going to help each other along career wise. And that sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't. Sure. Um, but you do but have just, this cohort. You have a camaraderie for yeah. sure. Uh, and it's amazing to see, you know, there's no two same stories in this industry. Mm-hmm. So you just get together for drinks and you get all the latest <laughs> from everyone and how different everyone's journey yeah, has been. Yeah, yeah, Or you get 410 episodes of a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, Denise, what is your breaking in story? How did you get started in this business? Oh, wow. That's um – I'm going to try to keep it short. You know, I do hope that, you know, for all my peeps out there who are immigrants and who don't know anyone moving to Hollywood, I just want to tell you guys, um, if anybody's listening out there, who, <laughs> no you know, no who that is. would apply to, uh, it is definitely possible. You know, so I actually um, moved here from Germany. My mm-hmm. parents are both Iranian um, and they were both political activists. So I was raised in Berlin and in Hamburg and I actually thought I was going to be a novelist. Mm-hmm. So I never, I didn't even know that TV writing was a job. It's just something you don't think about really. Yeah. And then at some but point. writing was part of. Writing was always sort of, um, it was very therapeutic for me and sort of um, what I was using to, you know, uh, as a sort of escapism mm-hmm. and to deal with uh, things that have been happening in my own life. And so um, when I moved out here, I actually just wanted to take um, UCLA extension classes to mm-hmm. learn structure because I always I was really fascinated um, by how, you know, Americans had turned storytelling into a science. And there were <laughs> books like there was Blake Snyder and Sid Field yeah. and, you know, um, you know, Joseph Campbell and things like that. And so I was like, okay, if I'm going to be a miserable dentist and, you know, who secretly writes novels at <laughs> night, I might as well, um, you know, learn how to use structure properly. And so when I was here, I actually ended up writing 10 scripts in the program because wow. German discipline. And then, um, <laughs> My instructors, Erica, uh, Erica Byrne and Phil Kellard, they actually said, hey, we have an annual contest. Well, it's mostly meant for the MFA students, which mm-hmm. I didn't have the money for any of that. Mm-hmm. And they were like, well, it's a blind contest. Nobody's going to know how much money uh, you've put into the pro- <laughs> program. And I ended up winning. And, was um, it a, yeah. uh, an original script? I actually believe it was a spec script for a dramedy and it was called Awkward. Oh, sure. Show, yeah, yeah, yeah. Lauren that was um, yeah. yeah, it was a great show. Exactly. So that was the thing that got me started. Um, and, um, and did that, you know, what, what came of that? Well, I landed my manager I'm still with after six and a half years. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's like family to me. That entire management company is. That's great. They were the first ones to really believe in me and, you know, thinking that they saw something special. Uh, Awkward wasn't the only script that I've been writing. Mm-hmm. It was only one because you have to write multiple samples right. and like different, um, you know, genres. And I actually had always been planning to become a drama writer. Mm-hmm. But because this is the spec that won, the first agent that I got, really, you know, was adamant about me writing comedy. And I was like, but I'm not funny. Like, I'm, you know, Germans don't have a sense of humor. What are you doing to me? Today's episode is sponsored by Eero. Hey, thanks, Eero. What's Eero? I'll tell you what Eero is. Life's too short for bad Wi-Fi. Eero was started because Eero had a dream. They wish they had fast, reliable 
Wi-Fi connection in every room. And in the backyard, too. And so they created the home Wi-Fi system, the Eero home Wi-Fi system, bringing the idea of multiple access points placed throughout the house to consumers for the first time. We're talking now about the second generation of Eero systems. Allow customers to build a Wi-Fi system that's more perfectly tailored to their home than ever before. I live in a weirdly shaped home because the people who owned it for 50 years before we owned it uh, made a lot of additions to it. So there are odd corners. So when we set up Eero, you bounce that uh, Wi-Fi signal all over the house. You get more speed, more range, high quality, elegant design. It's good stuff. Eero Plus is designed to provide simple, reliable security that defends all of your home's devices against a growing number of threats such as malware. Malware or malware? (laughs) Malware. (laughs) Spyware, phishing attacks, as well as unsuitable content. The combination of Eero with Eero Plus provides complete protection for your network and all the devices and those who use them as they connect to the internet. Total protection. Eero Plus offers the ability to block malicious and unwanted content across your entire network. Advanced security. By checking the sites you visit against a database of millions of known threats, Eero Plus prevents you from accidentally visiting malicious sites without slowing anything down. That is actually really true. Like, my Wi-Fi has never been better since I uh, installed Eero, and you don't get, like, the pop-ups and stuff. So ad blocking, you get rid of annoying pop-up ads, Uh, On all your devices, ad blocking also improves load times for ad-heavy sites so you can browse and stream faster than before. You also get content blocking. Eero Plus automatically tags sites that contain violent, illegal, or adult content so you can choose what your kids can and cannot visit right in the Eero app. The Eero app is super easy to use. They also ad block third-party security apps, uh, VPN protection from EncryptMe, Password management from 1Password, antivirus software from Malwarebytes. Look, like me, you've got your TV, your computer, your phones, your iPad, uh, your dog bowl, your uh, fish bowl, <laughs> your coffee maker, all on your Wi-Fi. Um, and so, it's, look, it's simple physics. Like light waves, Wi-Fi doesn't, Wi-Fi waves don't go through walls well. So imagine asking a light bulb in your living room to light your master bedroom. That doesn't work. You know, the router is in the office. If it's got to turn on the coffee maker, it can't go through the kitchen wall. So you need a distributed system. Eero has incredible customer support. It's something that the company is really invested in. And this is where I can speak to my personal endorsement. Um, I am dumb and... Even as easy as Eero is to set up with the app, uh, I still needed to call customer support, and they were so easy. You call, you get a hold of a Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds, that is true. Uh, If you have any worries about your other connected devices during setup, one of Eero's experts can walk you through everything, which they did for me. They can also help you if you're not sure how many Eero's are right for your home. We wound up, I think they sent us three, and I think we wound up ordering one more um, because of our weirdly shaped house. Uh, And now we get perfect Wi-Fi in every room. Uh, The setup, as I said, easy and simple, um, and then the customer support made it even easier. So we have a special offer from Eero. You never have to think about Wi-Fi again. You get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package and one year of Eero Plus. Visit eero.com slash 
panel. And at checkout, enter panel, P-A-N-E-L. And once again, you get $100 off the Eero base unit and two beacons package, which is more than enough for like a three-bedroom home. Um, we got the extra one because we were doing it like in the backyard, basically. It's an addition. Um, so we wound up with three beacons. Um, but all you need really to get started are, are the base unit and two beacons. One year of Eero Plus. Go to Eero.com panel. And at checkout, enter P-A-N-E-L. And you will enjoy Eero like I do. Hey, thanks, Eero. <laughs> I'd kind of like to talk to all of you about this and mm. sort of managing your managers, right? I think <laughs> I feel like we've talked about this before off microphones. But, uh, I think we have, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but mm. they're like having that conversation with your managers, with your agents about yeah. like, here's what I want to do. And when you're a new writer, that's a hard thing to to sort of absolutely set those goals for yourself. You are in such a in a mindset where you're trying to please because you're just so grateful yeah. to have anybody take an interest in you. But I think you have to be careful not to lose yourself as a person because ultimately that's why you're writing and that's why people will respond to your voice. Mm -hmm. And so the great thing about my manager is he's always been really flexible and he knows that people have to grow together. Mm -hmm. But sometimes, you know, like my first agent, she had already put me in a box and right. this is what I was meant to do. And so when I said, hey, I have all these new samples for you, she ended up never using them. So mm. she became an obstacle to where I wanted to go. Yeah. Um, but normally, I don't feel um, that I've ever managed my representatives. I feel that I've learned to understand them as people and uh, come to appreciate them as people. And I know that that's mm -hmm. not, you know, that's kind of rare. But I actually really like them, uh, you know. They have breaks on their morals. They're, you know what I mean? They're really nice people and they're cool guys. And, um, you know, my feature agent, Darian, is a an amazing woman. And so there's no reason for me to finesse them and sure. try to, like, I, I feel like I can be very open with them mm -hmm. and we know each other very well. And well, so, that's the best case scenario, yeah. right? So have you been able to, <clears throat> excuse me. I never feel like I I, I, I had to try to uh, manipulate them right. into doing certain things or, um, you know. Yeah, 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 manage them right. at all. So, but yeah. just having the conversation, being able to say, "Here's where I'd like to be," or "Here's the kind of show I'd like to be on," or "Here's the kind of movie I'd like to write." Have you been able to have those conversations? Yes, absolutely. Good. And I think that they've always, uh, you know, I think their policy is as long as it's good, we don't care, mm -hmm. because I think they trust me as an artist, and they they've come to trust my instincts. The only thing that they will do is they will point out, and by they I mean my manager. He will never pitch me solutions mm -hmm. or how to fix a scene, but right. he'll say what I want to feel more of is this. Mm -hmm. And then he'll leave it up to me and, that's really and how valuable. to do that. That's yeah. a good kind of so feedback. So we've, um, I've been, <clears throat> knock on wood, I've been extremely lucky with, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And sometimes it takes time to find those right people. How, uh, yeah. Tell me about your, your experiences with your representation. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I... Uh, yeah, so when I had a partner, his name's uh, Shane Kozakowski, was my partner for a long time. So we were, we had a, the young guy at CIA that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, Who it seemed like was a good deal for new writers. Yeah. Like he's going to get you on a comedy show, which is where you wanted to be. I think so. And I think he's still probably a good agent, mm -hmm. um, you know, for for more experienced writers. Yeah, it got to a point. I mean, one of the good things about having a manager and an agent, I have, I have a lot of writer friends who don't have a manager. Yeah. And they're just fine. <laughs> and I often wonder, mm -hmm. should I have this manager right. that, I, that I pay 10%? <laughs> um, I like my manager. But one of the good things about having that is you can 
complain to your manager about your agent. Yeah, um, I've never done vice versa. It probably works both <laughs> ways, but for some reason yeah. I've, I've talked to my, have you gone vice versa as I well? I think I have, yeah. not with my current, but, uh, with yeah. The yeah. One, yeah, I did. <laughs> well, it's nice to have at least someone who can call the other guy up at the other yeah. company and, and, and sort of hint to them, like step up your game or he wants more of this. And they kind of just save you having to have that awkward conversation, yeah. which you don't want to do, you know? Well, and there's something, I mean, you've worked with a partner and I work with a partner. And I think the thing about working with a partner is you sort of, Keep each other honest, right? Right, you're responsible for each exactly. other. So having a manager little, and agent is often yeah, the same. Yeah, accountability. Same yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and we and that happened, and and then we ended up leave. I had a weird call with my agent where he called me and basically told me that he was sort of getting kicked off of our team without saying that, and was just like, "I'm moving more into this," and hmm. and I was like, "Are you my agent?" <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, yeah," and then, like I never heard from him. Again. Oh no! <laughs> and so. When they, we, this was at CAA and they brought someone else on or whatever. And it just kind of wasn't working. And um, and having the manager help me be able to be like, yeah. I want to leave. And he set up a you know, meeting yeah. at, at another place for me. And, and that was it's nice to have that, I guess. But I think in general it is tough. I mean, it's a tough thing because they're working for you mm-hmm. and they're trying to get you work if they're good. Right. So you And wanna, very often, I mean, to to what Denise is saying, like very often you like them. You like them. You know, that's yeah. a reason you're staying with them. And like there's a it's important to say no to things like you're saying because yeah. you wanna define who you are and what you like. But at the same time, it's hard to say no to things because it's work and because things lead to other you, you never know what an opportunity could Absolutely. be. And so it is, it's, it's a tricky like line to walk sometimes, mm-hmm. I think. Mm, yeah, I agree so. with that. I, I remember actually, I would like to say that I've been listening to his podcast for years. I would say probably <laughs> seven, eight years. Oh my and God. Uh, when it <laughs> was you, still I'm going sorry. on. And, uh, <laughs> no, no, no. I, thank you for everything that you do for writers. And I think uh, during some really dark times when I was doubting myself and I was like, oh, fuck all this. I'm just going to go back to Germany. I actually think a lot of the wisdom that I picked up from, you know, the podcast actually kept me going. And I remember Terrence Winter saying, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, oh, I would never apologize for any of my early credits. Like he wrote on Flipper and he wrote on Sister, Sister. And we're talking about Terry Winter here, who's like one of the best writers. His story was one of the most inspiring to me as well. And so for me, what I took from that is like, you got to walk through the doors that open. And I would never now look back at a credit that I have and go, oh, what was I thinking? Because it enabled me to be in the WGA. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, gain experience, make contacts, which I didn't have as an immigrant moving out here, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh, just learn so much by being in these rooms and also becoming a chameleon and adjusting to these different tones because mm-hmm. I've worked on a fantasy video game, <laughs> action video game for PS4, Shadow of Mordor, uh, right, which is like... Drop here. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's Lord of the Rings based, <laughs> FYI. Carly, she's doing um, a much better job at plugging than we are. We I gotta, know, I gotta like, start pulling out some <laughs> You get residuals on that game? <laughs> I wish. I wish. No, we don't. Uh, I worked on a legal dramedy, a Southern mm-hmm. family drama, a hip-hop anthology series. A, what was that? Um, it's called Tales. Irv Gotti runs it. Is it still on? 
Um, I believe so. I, th- I oh. believe there's going to be a season two. There's so much TV. But it's an <laughs> anthology series, like I said. So each yeah. um, each episode is actually based on a hip-hop song. So what they do is they send you a bunch of hip-hop songs. This and they're awesome. like, make up a story. And I pitched him. I was like, I want to do Rashomon meets Straight Outta Compton. And he was like, <laughs> great. And That's so great. That was, and then after that, I worked on a military action series, mm-hmm. which is The Brave, and now a sci-fi show. So it's like I've been all over the place. And I think um, it's sort of some, some people are like, I don't really know where to put you, but to me, that's been a real gift because I've learned to adjust mm-hmm. um, to uh, any kind of voice that, yeah. you know. Well, and that's, uh, that's a big part of the job when yeah. it's not yeah. your own show. It's you're, right. you're writing someone else's voice. You have to hit that target. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. I really like that. I I think that being a chameleon is so much part of the business. Oh, yeah. And like part of the reason that I cringe when I think about like how much the business has changed over only wanting pilots mm-hmm. because I know some great writers who can only write one voice and sometimes like a spec would have showed out like the ones who can write in multiple voices yeah. when you're staff, but you have to do a lot more of. And if you're selling things, it's a different story. But like, that's something I've always strived to be in my, is like, I want to be able to throw any sort of genre at me and I can write it because I'm a craftsman, you know, like, and there's really, it's all about catching that voice. That's really awesome. You've worked in so many different genres. And I will, and maybe you can bang the drum harder for this that I've been saying for the past few years, that there's real value in writing specs of existing shows. There is real value. Nobody does it anymore, do they? I feel like it's kind of a thing. Just for the fellowships and stuff. I teach a spec class and And it's like, I have to sell why you should write one, even though they bought the class. Well, sell sell it to us because I do want the listeners to hear Well, I think the biggest thing is it allows you to learn everything in a very controlled environment. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you're writing a pilot versus a s- screenplay versus a spec, in a pilot, you're creating the world, the characters, the tone, the structure, and you want to show why this can run for 100 episodes. Right. Like that's so much to try to do. But if you're writing a spec, it's like the characters exist, the world exists, where the tone exists. There's like people can read it and automatically know if you're getting the tone or not. Absolutely. With a pilot, it's like if they're reading it slightly off or aren't catching your voice or your action lines aren't lively enough, the entire tone reads off and people may just pass yeah. it to the side. And like you can't, you know, and someone who doesn't even work in the business can read yeah. a spec of a show that they watch and be like, oh yeah, that character would do that. Oh no, this like, doesn't even sound like the character. And it allows you to really learn that entire process without having to feel like it has to be perfect as a pilot because pilots are hard. Yeah. They're like hard for those of us who've been in the industry for so long. <laughs> Absolutely. I can't imagine like that being the, the thing I'm relying on to get my foot in the door. Mm-hmm. Also, oh, do you think, I'm sorry, go ahead. Um, sorry, I just went off of what she mm-hmm. was just saying. Um, I wanted to say that a trick that I've used that's always worked for me and hopefully it's going to work for maybe somebody else who's about to get staffed and maybe is scared like how am I going to be able to pull off the tone of the show? Mm-hmm. Um, just pick up your favorite script, you know, ask the writer's assistant for the scripts of the entire season and just sit down and transcribe the script. Just sit I've down and type it. i doing that before. Did that work for you? Um, yes, absolutely. Awesome. Because you get the rhythm, how mm-hmm. long, you know, th- like this character only mm-hmm. ever speaks, like t- never says more than two sentences or, you know, you just really get the yeah, rhythm right. of, uh, and also you kind of get to copy the tone that your boss likes yeah. a lot of and that you time. Even so on yeah. the page what your boss yeah. likes. Maybe exactly. you know, he or she doesn't like have, more than four yeah. lines of dialogue yeah. in a row. And sometimes they don't even know that that's what they like or don't like. Absolutely. It's just what they've done. It's subconscious. It's yeah. To, yeah. Like yeah. you can subconsciously catch so, up on the things they're subconsciously doing yeah. and all of a sudden sure. they're going to consciously like you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a trick that I would recommend yeah. people use if you wanna, you know, really get very close to it's good advice and it's good for people starting on that job but it's also good advice for people just learning to write a tv show mm-hmm. right because yeah. you're basically taking that thing apart you're reverse engineering it yep. as you do it right. uh, but franklin yeah. you were going to say well i just i feel like when i 
you know, have coffee with someone who's trying to break in or something like that, I always tell them to write an original instead of a spec mm-hmm. because I've been told that people don't want to read specs these days. And now I feel like, was is that like, do you think that they you should They want to read it. Yeah. It's like the thing, like, write a spec that you never have to show anybody. Right. <laughs> because you're going to learn all these things right, okay. that are going to allow you then to write a better pilot once right. you're done with that yeah. spec. And it really should be that, like, weird first step towards doing an original. Right. Because the original is just so, you're, you're just biting off so much to chew. And some people are, can hit the ground running yeah. with a pilot out of the gate. But, like, others, it's like, you need to just sort of learn it. And also the thing of, and I was one of these people, like, I wanted to... I wanted everything that I wrote to be able to be used. Yeah. And right. like, you feel like, oh, why am I writing a spec that will never be read right. by anyone? But I, I promise anyone who writes a spec before a pilot, it's going to be a better pilot right. if you wrote a spec I first. Absolutely point. Agree. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I feel like there's also, you know, I think so, uh, we're a little older than she is, but <laughs> <laughs> you're just a child. <laughs> Um, it's just brown don't frown. <laughs> you said you've only been doing this a couple of years. Um, but I think there was something to like growing up and wanting to write for television or when I realized I wanted to write for television, um, the job wasn't seeing myself as a creator, right? It was, yeah. I could write for this show that I love. I mm-hmm. could write for this show that I love, right. which is why like, and that's its own skill. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and as Carolee was saying, I couldn't have learned to write a pilot without doing that stuff first. Right. I think there's so much value in that. The other thing I would recommend, and tell me if you all have done this, is reverse engineering a show by watching it. Oh, yes. I have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's well, how I first wrote a spec. Because I, yeah. I didn't, the first spec I ever wrote, I didn't, I hadn't taken any classes in it. Mm-hmm. I was just sort of like, oh, how do you do this? And I like TiVo'd, because it was still TiVo, yep. <laughs> episode, and just like, I like beautiful-minded that shit. <laughs> yep. I like had like a notebook. I knew how many like, how many storylines were going on? Yep. What characters told what kind of jokes? What show was it? It was uh, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guide, <laughs> Nickelodeon. That's not what I would have guessed. Uh, no, I did not watch the show before. I was thinking about specking, but to me, it felt like Scrubs for kids, and I love Scrubs, and it had like a lot of heart to it, and was like had a lot of which is funny because I think for a spec, this isn't necessarily the thing that you want, but it was a lot of physical humor. I think that like really like witty banter works better in a spec mm-hmm. than anything physical but it was really fun to write I ended up getting a job from it years later oh, that's great. Um, that's really I was like funny. oh maybe it wasn't all for naught but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah I and then once I then moved to LA and was taking like spec classes or pilot mm-hmm. classes I was like oh I was doing all the right things with like really just breaking it down and trying you know there's no save the cat really for television there's some no. good books out there now but like even then every show it has their own thing and the way that you learn that is by dissecting it and saying like oh this is how this works let me do it myself and i do the same thing even writing pilots i look at mm-hmm. other things in similar tones and be like oh how do they do it oh how do i want mine to be similar or different because yeah. of the way they did it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, franklin was that your experience as well what uh not really no. <laughs> i this is kind of recently actually i wrote a one-hour pilot because mm-hmm. i've only ever done comedy and i know nothing about the one-hour world other just then as an audience so uh yeah i I put the pilot to Deadwood on and I just wrote oh like an outline. Like I just paused it. And I was like, okay, first scene. And I want to just write like, you know, a summary of it yeah. and, and some notes on like, this is what he's doing and this is what he's doing with the characters or whatever. And, um, yeah, I don't know if it was that helpful for me. <laughs> By the end, it's I was such like, an outlier. It is, I know. That was there wasn't a good choice. But, um, <laughs> but there's still value in that, right? Like, how is this was. guy breaking the rules? Totally. It was a, it was a good exercise in being like, this is an awesome pilot. I don't think I can write this. <laughs> sure. <laughs> it's not applicable to the one I want to write. But um, it was interesting and it was fun to do. You know, I mean, when you're watching something, it just kind of washes over you. And when you actually stop and make yourself write down notes about it, you realize so much more about mm-hmm. it. 
For so, sure. Yeah. And when you went to then write your own pilot. Yeah, I just threw all that. I didn't even think about it. <laughs> it was gone. Maybe it was in the back. Maybe it was in my subconscious sure. and it helped me. And presumably you've watched enough TV. Yeah. Also, that all that stuff is working in there. Once you right? start doing it, it's just storytelling and it's yeah. second nature. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Today's episode is brought to you by Everlane. They make clothes. You shouldn't have to restock your basic clothes more often than your toothpaste. With Everlane's quality, you don't have to. There are plenty of places you can pay premium prices for mid-range quality. Not with Everlane. They make luxury basics at ethical factories without those retail markups. Um, I wholeheartedly endorse Everlane. I'm I'm pleased that they are sponsoring us. That's very flattering. Um, But I would shop at Everlane even if they weren't. I really like their stuff. Um, if your look is like, uh, just move to Echo Park or Brooklyn, if your look is 10 years out of Harvard, (laughs) then you're going to like Everlane also. Look, all I'm saying is they dress, they make clothes for me and everybody I know. (laughs) I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't get in. Um, maybe if I had Everlane when I was in high school, I would have. Um, I've been needing a new backpack for when I travel, and I actually got to take it for a test run recently. And um, this thing was has, is huge storage, but it's a high quality. And in fact, we had some dog treats in it. <laughs> and my dog was like, I know you got treats in there. And he started pulling on the backpack, which is something he never does. Uh, but he was pulling on the backpack to get at the treats and the thing held together. It was perfect. Uh, and, and then we could stop him did not come apart. So I really, I recommend, even if you're not looking for clothes, they got backpacks, they have slippers, they have bathrobes, um, all kinds of those sort of like extra stuff, scarves and hats. Uh, I got a, a scarf and a hat for my sister, uh, cause she just moved to Colorado and she really likes it and needs it. Anyway, go check out our personalized collection at everlane.com slash panel, P-A-N-E-L. And you'll get free shipping on your first order. That's everlane.com slash panel, everlane.com slash panel. Everlane, thank you for sponsoring. I really like your stuff. Denise, I wanted to talk about going from these first couple of shows that you were on, Franklin and Bash and Mm -hmm. Queen Sugar, where, Mm -hmm. um, and then going to The Brave, where you mentioned earlier that you felt like that was a show you were really proud of. You felt like you were sort of at home there. Um, I think that, I mean, I'm honestly proud of everything that I've done because mm-hmm. it's gotten me to this point. And I think I've learned something on every single show, um, whether it's humor or structure, you know, um, you know, uh, how to be better in the room, things mm-hmm. like that. Um, but I feel like on The Brave, it was the first show where Muslim characters and women were portrayed in a very positive light. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a very good relationship with our bosses. They really trusted us. They're like, if we give you a script, we trust you that you could do it. That's and great. there was, um, you know, also the way that they were interacting with each other. It was, you know, very respectful and they were all friends. And so it was just a good time all around. It felt like having a surrogate family of sorts. But That's I especially great. liked the message that the show sent out there. A lot mm-hmm. of people thought it was like, oh, this is going to be propaganda. Right. And it, it really wasn't. I think it was supposed to be a fun show. It was supposed to be born identity more than, mm-hmm. any, than anything else. So I really um, enjoyed my time there. But, Did you, and it sounds like you felt like you really had a voice on that show. 
Um, I mean, I do, but you know, that being said, I don't think that that's necessary. Um, you know, I don't know if we've talked about this. I've, you guys have mentioned that you came out of the, uh, fellowships, right? Mm -hmm. So I actually was told that I couldn't be part of a fellowship because I had applied the first couple of times. And honestly, my scripts just weren't good mm -hmm. enough at that point. But then at some point, I think I got into the quarterfinals. I'm not going to say who I met with, mm -hmm. but I was essentially told, well, you're German Iranian. And so you're not, you don't fall into the category that we're looking for because we're looking for, um, African American, Asian and Latino. And so you don't actually fit in there. And then after that, I was like, screw this. So you're telling me that my life experiences, And everything that comprises who I am um, actually doesn't matter as, wow, you know, for yeah. the storytelling Insane. in this town. And so I said, fuck this. And I stopped applying. And it's actually kind of a miracle that I still was able to manage to get a job without, <laughs> yeah. um, you know. Well, you did the work. I mean, it sounds like you not I just written so many show, scripts that… You did the hard work. <laughs> I mean, it's, also, it's a numbers game, you guys, you know, mm -hmm. out there. I think that if you stick with it and… Um, I guarantee you, if you put 10 years into becoming, you know, studying to wanting to become a doctor, which is probably what I would, would, would have done if the writing thing hadn't worked out, um, you know, you also have to be able or willing to put 10 years of effort into being a professional writer. If you're willing to do that and you stick around long enough and you really write mm -hmm. what you love and you get better at what you do and you network, make friends, I think it's almost impossible to fail, you know, um, so... I think you just have to choose it as a way of life. Mm -hmm. And once you it commit really to that, that yeah. 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 I think also But, um, there's a, you have to sort of sometimes adjust yeah. what success is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I think that like you think, oh, this is going to be the path. And then it's like there's some twists and turns along the way. Always. And yeah. like I always think that's so interesting where success, you know, if I'm teaching a class or speaking on a panel or on a thing like this, like – What people that sounds like versus how I feel on a daily basis. Where it's right? like, well, that show, or you know, I really wanted this show to go, or I really wanted this. And it's like, yeah. you have to sort of adjust that, like the, the the windows that opened up are the right ones, and those are the ones that you should, yeah. you know, go through. And whether you're, even if you're a white guy out there, you know, um, for example, Ty Frank, right, and Narain Shankar on the Expanse, mm -hmm. they write incredible women. Yeah. Ty probably yeah. writes better yeah. women than I will ever be able to. So I don't think that you should be limited by who you are because the magic of being a writer is you get to live in, you know, this kind of whatever kind of person you want to live in. Mm -hmm. And so you can do that. You know, I think we, we have multiple tools, right? We have empathy, we have our own life experiences and memories, but then we also have research and imagination. Mm -hmm. And so if you use any of those tools, I think you can really write whoever you want and whatever you want. So, you know, going back to looping back to your mm -hmm. question on the brave. Yes, I did feel like a lot of my life experiences, you know, my parents being political refugees mm -hmm. and, you know, escaping from Iran and sort of me coming from a Jewish Muslim background, going to like all of these things came in very handy. Um, but I think that someone else who had just done the research or maybe had a best friend who has that experience or read up mm -hmm. on it could have done the exact same mm -hmm. job so well and, and yeah i don't think it's a necessity is what no, i'm saying and I but think yeah that, you know i wasn't i wasn't asking specifically about the your background but mm -hmm. your interests like were were you as a writer represented uh as a, yes. you know because well we've all we've all been on staff right and these are right. shows that are not our voice mm -hmm. and i'm always curious about being able to tell your own story or finding something in that show that you think is yours mm -hmm. you know yeah i think well the, yeah. The, the, that's the best job you can do on the staff yeah. is i think to 
not just be like, I can tell the stories they want to tell and, and mm-hmm. I can tell them in these characters' voices, but to put yourself into the show and to mm. just you – know, maybe just tell a really intimate, embarrassing story about yourself in the room. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and in a comedy room, you're often called on for, for sure. this kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. And then that – that's, and it works for the show, even though you weren't trying to fit it into the show, mm-hmm. but just because it's it's your personal human experience, it works great for the show. Yeah. Do so. you find that stuff in, in the recent rooms you've been in? I mean, you're the worst with such a brutally honest comedy. Yeah. That was more than any show I've ever been yeah. on was like that. And it was a five-person staff. Yeah. And um, for the first four years, it didn't change at all. So we got to know each other very well. But it was kind of the unspoken mandate of the room was like, this is like therapy, you know, we're going <laughs> to, we're going to know everything about each other. And we did. And, um, yeah, I told some, I told things in that room that I hadn't told my wife that like I hadn't told <laughs> oh my, my best friend. Um, and some of them went into the show, you know, yeah. but it was, it was a, an environment that fostered that. I mean, the, you know, the downside of that is that like when I was on the Mick more recently, I get to go there, <laughs> show up, do my job pitch some jokes, go right. home and forget about it, you know, and, and it is nice to have that delineation also sometimes. Sure. You just yeah. want to do Absolutely. your job. You're the worst. It was like a sort of all-consuming thing. Yeah. Um, and it made for a great show, but it's it, that it can be intense also. Uh, was it a – I mean, looking at the stuff you were sort of coming off of, how to live with your parents and then the Muppets and then right. going to You're the Worst, yeah. like what was that transition like? Did you have to learn to dig deep in the room? Um, maybe, there was maybe a learning curve, but I don't – Think so, you know, um, Stephen Falk, the creator, mm-hmm. and he was good at just mm-hmm. sort of establishing that tone. And then I think he did a good job of of hiring people who got we all became friends right away, and yeah. and that so it was kind of easy. Um, and it was small, but it it was I don't know. I think it suited me also because I'm just I'm not a, I don't care. You know, I'll, I'll say anything. So <laughs> it was fine. I was fine with it. Maybe I said too much. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I made people uncomfortable. No, but um, in any event, it worked. It worked. Yeah. Um, but it was it was different, um, and I don't think it can always work. I think you need no. the right people, absolutely, um, and I think you need a good showrunner, which we had. Um, but um, yeah, I think there I think there's I think there's value in in both ways. In both oh, ways, for sure. Right. I mean, I remember very early on in this podcast having sort of a traditional comedy writer right. who had gone to the Parenthood room. Right. And found mm. it so difficult because right. they were so emotional. There was crying time and yeah. they were sharing so much personal detail about their lives that he was like, yeah. where, where are the yeah. jokes? Where, yeah. like, right. Why aren't we just plotting on the board? <laughs> <laughs> um, Carolee, I, I, th- I feel like you and I have had some sur- similar experiences working in animated shows and yes. kids shows. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm curious to hear how you – found your way uh, like you were on Peabody and Sherman for a while I was yeah um, and sort of finding your voice in that show or was it just about finding someone else's voice on the I show? mean Peabody was especially hard in that way because it was storyboard driven so oh, we didn't right. write scripts we yeah, just yeah, wrote yeah. outlines and there was so much to, there was like you know Peabody and Sherman are doing a talk show in their penthouse apartment with historical figures and they're also going on a time travel thing every week and like to do both of those within 22 minutes was just a lot um, and it was all um, our showrunner or I guess story editor because it's animation yeah uh, he just loved movie references and TV <laughs> references from his generation and I really struggled with that because I was a little bit younger than him and the other guys I was on staff with were more like in tune with what he was watching so I would like oh, be like wow. oh it's like this movie where this scene happens 
And they'd be like, no, no, it's like this movie where the scene happens. And it's like, <laughs> it's the same scene. It's just different movies. Um, so that I think was like, Oof. it really was. And I love, I love parody and satire. So it was like, I thought that that would be really my alley. But then I started to learn like, oh no, I think I actually really like something grounded emotionally happening. Mm. And coming off of that, like the next thing I did after Peabody was a lot of stuff at Hasbro. Mm-hmm. And Hasbro was like really delightful in that because it was, you know, um, Hanazuki was this like, it was this weird, I mean, it was like Lisa Frank, uh, folder come to life it was rainbows and unicorns oh and God. she was on a moon and she was trying <laughs> to save it from the big bad is literally what the bad guy's name was awesome and in that one it was like a lot more of like oh what was happening with hanazuki even though she was this weird creature mm-hmm. was a lot like resonated with me more than trying to just oh, make funny. the story of the week happen um even though the other show was very fun and very funny i think the artist made it especially funny yeah um and, and then like from there i did 20 shorts for hasbro that all were like silly and fun, but it was also this character, Bev the Turtle, who um, had a late night talk show. And, but she you really had a, found a weird niche. Right? It was a very <laughs> weird niche of like these kids' things that have this late night talk show. Um, and then that was moving into Costume Quest Amazing because even though Costume Quest is this weird show, again, mm-hmm. with this, you know, sci fi element of defeating monsters and having a monster of the week, um, each of our main characters, our showrunner is the guy that created um, The Adventure of Pete and Pete. Mm hmm. And which has this like weirdo sensibility, but also this like coming of age heart to it. And real characters. And real characters. And that's what Costume Quest became is we had four main characters that were all 12 years old and over the course of the season have their coming of age stories that happen. And I was the only female on staff there too. So I feel like I got to have a little bit of a voice of like what the female characters were dealing with with that. Uh, But again, like you were saying, where it's like you can write for anything. And like the guys, Mm -hmm. especially we had guys who we just really – re-entered that sort of adolescent state in a, in a like, scary way because, like, that's a hard time of life and have to yeah. revisit it is, like, oh, do I have to tell the story of this or that? But that's what we did daily in the room was, like, oh telling stories about adolescents and, like, all those hard times. <laughs> but I think over the course of the season allowed us to get to some real places emotionally. And I, that's I started to realize, like, oh, I actually – the heart and the core of things coming from an improv and sketch background, I never thought, like, oh, that's, hmm. that's definitely my thing. But, like, oh, the more I go, the more I'm, like, oh, I want to write – comedy but i also wanted to make you feel something by the time you're done watching it yeah. so i think that for me when i'm watching shows that's what makes them stick with me sure and especially for pilots that's what you need um but also for shows on the air when you have to sort of create this bingeability factor um and like the new medianess of everyone starting at episode one yeah. it's like what's going to keep you watching for the season because it's not just like oh it's on right now <laughs> right. it's like no it has to compete with all of television for all of time yeah. what am i going to watch right now and i think that that's like that, that sticky factor of like oh i feel something i resonate with it even if it's right. not my exact you know experience yeah. in life yeah but it's still a, a basic human emotion oh for sure um, i mean i remember hearing this 30 years ago 20 years ago that like TV is different to movies because we invite them into our homes every mm-hmm. week. And right. and that creates a different kind of character. And I think as much as people point to like Breaking Bad and Mad Men as sort of breaking that mold, I don't know that it's that different. They're still compelling characters that maybe we don't love them, mm-hmm. right. but we love to watch them yeah. and we want to see it unfold. I think it's true. I mean, especially in comedy also – was a learning curve for me because a lot of the first half of my career thinking about writing pilots or something like that, I'm just thinking of like, what's funny, you know, like what's a funny idea? What's a funny world? What's a funny character? And it, and it took a while to realize that you can start with just a kernel of something that's really true and emotional to you. That's not necessarily funny and build out from there and then find what's funny about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, say what you will about Judd Apatow, but I think, you know, Freaks and Geeks did a lot to teach us exactly that. Yeah. 
Today's episode is sponsored in part by Molecule, M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E. Molecule is a complete reinvention of the air purifier, not just an improvement on existing outdated technology. It was developed by a scientist whose son suffered from asthma and who was frustrated by the, ta- by the fact that HEPA air purifiers did not relieve his son's systems. As a result, he spent 20 years developing a completely new, totally effective way of removing indoor air pollutants. Molecule replaces 50 years old, antiquated technology. Imagine if your phone was the same as it was in the 1940s. This is exactly what the technology you're using to clean your air was developed. The last major innovation in air purification was in the 1940s with the invention of the HEPA filter during the Second World War. Molecule makes a meaningful impact for asthma and allergy sufferers. In a study of 49 allergy sufferers presented by the American College of Asthma, Allergy, and Immunology, Molecule's technology provided dramatic, statistically significant, sustained symptom reduction within a week of use. One customer even said that she was able to breathe for her, through her nose for the first time in 15 years. The nose is the best place to breathe from. Molecule's technology has been personally effective and verified by science, but most importantly, it's been tested by real people. Molecule has already helped allergy and asthma sufferers around the country better cope with their conditions and significantly reduce their symptoms. So, if you want to get Molecule for $75 off your first order, Visit M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com, that's Molecule.com, Molecule with a K, and at checkout, enter PANEL, P-A-N-E-L. Once again, that's M-O-L-E-K-U-L-E dot com, and at checkout, enter the promo code PANEL for $75 off this brand new innovative air purifier. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to talk about what you all are doing these days and sort of how this journey that we've discussed has prepared you <laughs> for the stuff you're working on now. Uh, Denise, you're sort of finishing up the uh, in the room on the expanse. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about that experience and what you took from good rooms before then. I mean, the expanse was such a special room and um, one that will stay with me forever, no mm-hmm. matter what happens. I mean, we've just had Narain Shankar and, um, you know, Ty Frank, yeah, who's an amazing guy. By the way, you may not know this, but um, I think seven years ago, you did an interview with Narain mm-hmm. and Meredith Steam. Yes. You know, and a bunch of other cool yeah, guys. Yeah, we did a live panel. I was in that, in the audience, Were in you? that panel. Really? And, you know, I was writing features at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'd written seven features, you know, I think the feature business, the spec market in particular, was just dead. And I was very close to giving up. And then I saw Noreen during the panel, and he was talking about how how much fun it is to be in a writer's room, and you hang out with a bunch of other people, <laughs> and it's a collaborative medium, and you know, and it's you you get weekly pay, and all all of those things. And I was like, well, shit, maybe I should you know <laughs> yeah. start it's writing some TV. exactly. <laughs> right. Like really this this sounds fun, and so um, it was incredible to actually be able to work for oh the same gosh, person, that's, that's uh, you know, eight years later. Yeah. So that was really incredible. What made this room very special was that we had the author of the original novel. So the expanse is based on these, you know, best-selling sci-fi novels. And uh, one of the authors, Ty Frank, uh, you know, half of uh, the mysterious uh, James S.A. Corey persona is in the room with us every Mm. day. And I just think that the work that he's doing is so incredible. I've never seen somebody this open and gracious with essentially retelling the same Mm. story 
sticking to the plot mostly, but being open to everything else changing. Oh, that's uh, somebody said that doing an adaptation of your own work is like giving yourself a dental dam if you're a dentist, like <laughs> you're a root canal, like you should not do it. And I have been just amazed with how this man is just sitting there and just being open to everybody else's ideas that's and realizing really cool. how different this medium is. And by the way, he doesn't need to be there. His right. pay is not going to change. Like for him, it stays the same. He really is there because... Um, he cares. He cares about the show. And so watching the two of them work together and uh, also, you know, Narain is a scientist. Mm -hmm. So he knows so much about, you know, astronomy, just everything. It's uh, it's just incredible how much he actually contributes to the show uh, to an extent where I think they really just, uh, you know, what you guys were talking about earlier, whatever you work on, it has to be part of your personality, It has to take over a small aspect of what you're interested in, whether you're a nerdy person who likes video games or you're really into sports or, you know what I mean, or you, you're really family-oriented or maybe you were always an outsider, whatever it is. Like, there has to be some something that uh, emotionally you have to be able to tap into. And for The Expanse, for me, it was – I always saw it as an analogy for what humanity is like and the mm -hmm. world is like because really what The Expanse is saying is doesn't matter how far advanced, advanced we're, we're going to get. And even if we colonize the planets, people are always going to be people. And humanity is always going to find a way to mm -hmm. go to war with each other over essentially bullshit, right? And then um, also the idea of what – how life was created in the first place. Hmm. So these are very deep questions. And so I was very much drawn to that. And I think that what makes a great sci-fi or a fantasy show work is taking the characters out and plopping them into norm normal circumstances, everyday circumstances, mm -hmm. but it still works mm -hmm. because the characters are interesting. And that was the great thing about The Expanse yeah. and some of the other great sci-fi shows out there. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's not just working because of the concept of the show. Um, it's, it's also working because the character interactions and relationships are really interesting mm -hmm. and fascinating. So that was an amazing show. I mean, I actually saw Ben, he came in. That's right. um, so, so, you know, I was like, Hey, how are you doing? And so, um, I don't know if you saw the room, but it was just such an incredible room. It seemed like everyone the, was very happy, happy to be there. Yeah. And I think to That's me, really what I've learned is also to what we were, what Franklin was saying earlier. Um, it's really the showrunner who sets the tone. Mm -hmm. If the showrunner is a person who's very sort of chill and zen and hardworking and, um, you know, it's kind of like they're a magnet for what kind of behavior they're going to attract in the room. Mm -hmm. So if they're a happy, you know, balanced person, everybody else is also going to be really happy and balanced. But if they're, if there's, they're insecure or they mistake, uh, you know, strength for abuse, things like that, then it's going to affect everybody's behavior in the room because, you know, you're looking to your leadership as they say, the fish rots from the head. And so in this case, the fish was perfect. <laughs> I really like that fish. So it's good. Fish. You know, it's good. Fish. When I was fish, a, yeah. an assistant this, I, on the multicam where I met Claudia, there was a showrunner named Rob Lauterstein. I don't know if you guys know him. I He's know done name, some good yeah. stuff, but, um, He used to come in and say – he told a story about – I forget who said it, but it was about uh, maybe he worked in a pizza place or something like that. And they were like really stressed out and he was a kid and they were behind or whatever. And the boss made everyone stop and was like, guys, it's just pizza. Like calm down. <laughs> and he would say that about the show. He That's would like great. come in and be like, remember, it's just television. Like it's just pizza. And I always thought that was such a cool thing. I mean, it's his show. He's under a lot of pressure yeah. and he's telling his whole staff like at the end of the day like – We're making a TV show, you know, like we don't have to 
we don't have to lose our minds <laughs> over this. Right. I still remember that. We had the opposite <laughs> in cartoons. We had a plate that you had to put a dollar in if you said it's just a cartoon. Uh, <laughs> because in the kids' world, there's such a thing like, oh, it's just for kids. Oh, Who cares? Girl. Like, if you say that, you got to pay up because they were trying to, you know, like, sure. play by the height of our intelligence. Right. But I, it makes sense yeah, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Which, yeah, it's sort of the same. Yeah, it's it actually saying it's the same like, thing. Yeah. That, like, we're d- we can do some good stuff here, right. but, you We're know. doing a job, you know, exactly. and, yeah, it's it's always that weird mix between art meeting business, and yeah. it's always just going to be a strange little balance in this world, you know? Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, you get so caught up in your, like, tiny little dramas in your own career, Absolutely. and, like, I'll find myself having so much anxiety about something, and I'll just have to stop and be like... This doesn't matter at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like, this is such a tiny, tiny thing that to me it's the biggest deal in the world. Sure. And I just take a breath and go, like, all right, just let I, it go. I agree with what Franklin is saying. And I think I don't know about you guys, but I'm assuming most writers are notorious overthinkers oh, because yeah, course, we live in yeah. our heads so much and you know, sometimes that stuff just speeds up and stop telling yourself stories while you're at work. Just stop yeah. for all those people who are going to be staff writer for the first time. Don't do it. Just don't do it. Yeah. You know, because it can really take over the narrative and, right. uh, you know, for influence sure. your relationship with people. And you don't want that to happen. So, yeah. um, you know, as uh, one of my, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said, you know, if there's no proof for it, just drop it. Yeah. Like, don't don't listen to what your head is telling you Absolutely. all the time. Yeah. Right. So just go in there, be in it, do the job. Exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Carolee, uh can we talk about the fact that you are working on a pilot? We can talk about that, yes. Okay. Uh, but not what it is. <laughs> yes. Um, but I wanted to ask, so it sounds like you sort of had this journey of discovering what it is you like about mm. storytelling. Mm-hmm. Are you able to apply that to this new pilot? Yes, I totally can. This pilot has like, it's one of those, you know, I think that for most things that happen in this industry, it's always about like lightning striking, striking five times. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen. And this kind of really came out of the blue where I'm um, working this live action pilot for, uh, for a kid's show. And it was one of those where I wrote a new adult pilot. All of my pilots are adult pilots. It's just what goes out for samples for mm-hmm. me. And some executives um, really liked it. And then we decided to try to find something and they had a wheelhouse. I, in general, I think that's been my niche is like finding, because I'm also developing a couple of other pilots that are, oh, this place either had an IP or had an idea or had a world and they were looking for takes on it. Right. And I think of it very much like I, in school, I was really good. If you gave me a list of spelling words, I could put them all into one little paragraph for my test or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's right. so much of what the development process is like, oh, I can take all the things that you want and make it make sense. Yeah. Um, but this one was really just a seed of an idea of like a world um, that they wanted. And it really resonated with me. Um, and so I pitched them one take and then we like completely, they're like, we love everything about it except everything about it. Uh, so then we did like a sort of 180 where like some of the characters remain the same, but the entire world changed and what the structure of the show was. But it's been this interesting thing because, um, it's fun and it's goofy, but it also has this groundedness emotionally that has been the thing exactly what I've been wanting to work on. But that's a hard thing to find after working in like these lighter shows for a while they're like oh right but what's that balance like the first draft of the outline was way too like this is really um really grounded <laughs> and now like in the second draft being like oh no we're finding the light and this to it and you're able to balance it That's and right. i think that like the more you're able to laugh the more you're able to think and hopefully we'll see how it goes and we'll see you know how far it makes it through its That's process awesome. as you know yeah. how that all works but um but I'm, I'm really enjoying this one i really i think there's also something so wonderful when you get executives who give you really good notes absolutely and it's like oh my gosh especially on a pilot where you feel like you're just working in a vacuum because you don't have a writer's room around you daily. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So to be able to send something out and get notes that are helpful is um, 
it's that like little bit of like, okay, I'm not like, you know, I'm not totally off base here. Cause I am one of those people. I love the writer's room so much that mm-hmm. when I have to work from home, I get a little like, but I, I want input. I want that collaborative effort. And so this has been a really fun mix between like, I'm working on my own thing, but the, it has, I have three executives covering it and they all give great notes. Who are good collaborators. Mm-hmm. That's Yeah, for awesome. sure. Uh, and they well, get the vision of it, which is great too. Good. Uh, we'll come back and tell us uh, how it's going. Oh, as right. we go oh, yeah, yeah, down yeah. The line. That's exciting. Uh, Franklin, what, what are you doing these days? Uh, well, I did a big podcast, so sure. that was, uh, and it's happening right now, and I'm, I'm yeah, really yeah, excited. Yeah, you're killing about it. it. <laughs> killing it. Uh, I'm doing three network pitches in the next couple of weeks, which is a lot. Um, so I'm spending a lot of time right now, like writing pitch pages, yeah. which is its own art or yeah, craft. Which or is whatever. worth talking about at some point. It um, is, yeah. And similar stuff, like someone, a comedian has this idea, or we have this IP, and it is, it's sort of like... I just have my structure, you know, my pitch pig structure, and it's sort of a fill-in-the-blank thing where I, I take their idea and I sit down and I go, all right, here's how it fits into my structure, and here's how I fill in all the blanks. Um, oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I don't I don't wouldn't know how else to do it if, if I for me mm-hmm. if I didn't have that my brain wouldn't be able to get around it. Do you work alone now, or do you still have a partner? Alone now, oh. yeah, yeah. And did you? I'm curious about coming off of you're the worst, and then the Mick, mm-hmm. um, and the Mick, which was like a great joke machine. Yeah. Um, did that help clarify the sort of stuff you wanted to do? Um, the the contrast of the two, yeah. you mean? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I loved the Mick. It wasn't – You're the Worst is more what I wanted to do than mm-hmm. the Mick was, you know. Um, the Mick was a job that I was like, that show's really funny. So, yeah. And I know some people over there, and yeah, I'd love to go do it. Um, but no, I mean, coming off You're the Worst and the Mick, I, well, I mentioned before, like, I'm trying to do more one hour. So mm-hmm. it's, um, I'm writing a one hour pilot for Warner Brothers, right. which is going to be cool. It's an adaptation of a book. Um, and You're the Worst was the only cable thing I did that was like dark and dramedy. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like, I was like, I like this. This is, you know. It makes so sense. I don't know. The thing about like having been in a network a lot, like me, it just kind of pulls you back. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Like those are the things that just kind of keep coming. I'm like, uh, yeah, well, I need a job. So, well, I yeah, feel like it's that. also a thing that like the agents are often like, right. do this network, like go through this, right. see if you sell something. Exactly. And then we get to talk about the, your passion project, which is always a cable right. thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So pitching and, right. um, yeah. And, and trying to, trying to do a one hour thing. So I'm, I'm, That's just, I'm in the dark over there, but we're going we're to try to figure it out. <laughs> it's, it's probably good for you. Yeah. <laughs> Have the challenge. Uh, and we'll look for you on deadline to see all these things announced. Um, we'll wrap up by asking what you are watching on television these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your room, with your friends, with your loved ones? Uh, Denise, let's start with you. I just finished watching Killing Eve, which I really enjoyed. So and good. then um, I watched um, Scott Frank's Godless which I yeah. also really enjoyed. Yeah, um, that was really interesting. But my favorite shows of all time, and I don't think that's ever going to change, they're going to be Game of Thrones, uh, The Wire, and The Sopranos. All right, yeah. that's fair. So That's complicated storytelling. Yeah. Carly, okay. you should watch The Wire. You would yeah, have really you seen it? I have seen it. I have. Um, I, um, I have. Uh, <laughs> currently, I am now watching... Now it feels like you're protesting. I know, I know. Like, uh, let's take it off of it. Um... I am obsessed. It's a non-scripted show, but the show Making It with Nick Offerman and it's Amy so Poehler. It's so good. It's so good. It's such a feel-good show. It's so delightful. Yeah. Um, one of my friends like dubbed it like nice core. Like it is. It's so nice. It's like yeah. watching the Great British Bake Off. Exactly. It's like right. it makes you feel good. It makes it makes me want to do more handy stuff again. Um, but awesome. I um, scripted wise, I'm obsessed with Barry. I think that mm-hmm. Barry is 
so dark and so I was so going to say funny. Barry. You took mine. I was, I was also going to say Killing Eve. <laughs> you can but agree. But then that's like, they're the same <laughs> one. Yeah. And then I just this week binged the second season of Atypical. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked the first season, but I loved the second season. Really? And I just like, I thought it was really able to go a lot deeper on some things. And um, it was just a really, really good season in my book. So um, oh, nice. I love that. I'll check it out. Yeah. Good. Um, I love Succession. That that was mm-hmm. one of the best shows I've seen in a long time. I, I, the tone was, I mean, tone is such a hard thing to do and make feel unique. And they did such a good job of, of having really despicable characters that you just kind of fell in love with. And then it was like funnier than a lot of comedies I've seen on TV recently. I it's, like when a drama gets to be funny. It was like big time funny, like really? big laugh funny. Like some episodes were borderline farcical, I think. Huh. Um, uh, so, so let me ask you this. Succession has been recommended to me a lot in mm-hmm. the past couple months. Um, but I, it's like eight episodes or something like that. 10 I, episodes, maybe maybe 10. I want to say 10, yeah. but everyone who recommends it says you have to get through the first six. I thought you had to get through the first, maybe two. This for sounds me. terrible. It well, I didn't hate it. The first one is the worst one probably. Okay. Um, pilots are hard. Yeah. I mean, it, pilots are hard and it didn't really strike that tone as mm-hmm. much in the first one. Um, okay. I thought you really just, it was hard to like the characters, they're just a bunch of rich, spoiled brats who have everything they want and mm-hmm. then still have a lot of problems <laughs> that you're supposed Look, to care I about. I love Gossip Girl. So. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, I found it was, yeah, I mean, I would say two or three, but I, my sister watched half of it and still wasn't into it. So who knows? Yeah. It may not be for everybody. But hearing that it has a sense of humor and is actually funny, like that that's a good selling point for me. And I thought they, did, they do a very good job of something that I think is hard to do in writing, which is just having very unexpected endings to their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Viewers are really savvy these days, and even as a writer, I would I would think I would know where their stories are going. And a lot of times, they would just out of the blue have a really cool ending cool. that I didn't see coming. Mm-hmm. So, and, and the ending to the show was that way too. So, oh, to the, the season. So, yeah, yeah. All right. I'm we'll a big fan. Out. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you all for being here so much. This was a lovely conversation. I hope we get to talk again soon. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Writers Panel. Tune in next Tuesday and every Tuesday for a brand new episode. And in the meantime, please subscribe and review the Writers Panel on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. And follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. And let me know who you want to have on the show. The Writers Panel is a co-production of the Forever Dog Podcast Network and the ATX Television Festival. You can listen to more Forever Dog podcasts at foreverdogpodcast.com and keep up with the ATX Fest throughout the year at atxfestival.com. Thank you and see you next week. Well, you'll hear me next week. Thanks for subscribing. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.